0: Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Green Chef. Feel like the star of your own cooking show with Green Chef Meal Kits. Green Chef is a meal kit company that delivers everything you need to cook gourmet meals at home, including organic ingredients and easy recipes. You've heard me talk about this before, guys. I got an omnivore box sent to me. The stuff in it was top quality. And I learned all about Montreal steak seasoning. I Honestly, I didn't know about this, and now I want to put it on everything. It was really good. We whole family enjoyed the meals. Plus, all Green Chef meals are USDA-certified organic, and they offer options for specialty diets like vegan, paleo, gluten-free, and more. So sign up today for a special limited-time offer. If you go to greenchef.us slash watch, you will get $50 off your first meal kit. That's real money. That's greenchef.us slash W-A-T-C-H for $50 off. And sports to have to
1: clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan and I'm an editor at TheRigger.com. And joining me in the studio, he did not win the lottery 20 years ago. It's Andy Greenwald! And funny
0: story, my husband is still alive. <laughs> no? I think I'm probably the closest thing to you being your husband. I was hoping you would say that. That really makes my heart go flutter.
1: <laughs> it's been a long day for Andy Greenwald, living in living in Reseda. Uh,
0: <laughs> and Chris Ryan. We're just, we're, we're pushing through, man.
1: What a show today. Uh, we are going to be joined later. You are going to be joined later by Allison Herman to talk about The Americans and its final season.
0: The debut last night, we're going to talk about the first episode where we see the show going forward. Interestingly enough after I don't know how many episodes of The Watch, Chris Ryan finally took Edward Norton's exhortation. Literally, he stood up and walked out of the yeah. room when he learned we were going to <laughs> talking about it. Allison walked in,
1: I walked the out. out. By the way, there's a lot of good TV on, and The Ringer has you covered in a variety of different ways. You've got recappables every week on both Atlanta, hosted by Amanda Dobbins, and Billions, hosted by Bill Simmons and Mallory Rubin. So you can get, like, your instant recap mm-hmm. going right there. Uh, we talked about trust on Monday, mm-hmm. we also talked about Barry on mm-hmm. Monday, both shows that we're really into. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the return of Roseanne. Yeah. And the trailer, let's start with the trailer for Westworld Season 2, which you just watched. Yeah. Um, like Jack from Lost, I'm super into In Utero. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, Good call. shaped box is the p- the tinkled piano. Yeah. Uh, in the trailer. And the trailer does what we had sort of heard was coming it confirms what we sort of heard was coming with Westworld season two, which is an expansion. Uh, getting out of uh, this one horse town or multiple horse town that was season horses, one, Robot about yeah. horses, and we got some samurais. Mm. We got what looks like the incursion of the outside world a little bit more into the Westworld park
0: the, or parks. There's a shot that suggests some sort of bladeish runner city. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah,
1: yeah. And there's a lot of you know a lot more questions, but it seems like tonally <laughs> it still has the same. Same thing going on. Yeah, you know,
0: I watched it with great um, interest, mm-hmm. hunger. You know what I didn't see in the trailer? Um, let me know if you did. I didn't, I didn't see any characters. <laughs> are there any characters on this show yet? <laughs> <laughs> anything, anything worth caring about? Or just stone-faced robots talking about reckonings and dreams? Yeah, th- I think robots are your,
1: m- are to you what animated characters are to me.
0: No, I mean, I love Ex Machina. You know, OK, like I, I played with a transformer or 20 when I was a kid. <laughs> OK, it doesn't matter what the what what uh, uh, tools you're using to paint your masterpiece, you know, but just what is this show, man? What it seriously when you watch that trailer uh, and I mean this uh, not disingenuously, super ingenuous question. What's exciting about this trailer?
1: The fact that they're going to go outside and they're going to start poking around with what would happen if this kind of thing happened. And what is the world What is the world in which these parks can be built? You know what I mean? Like, that's something that I think in, say, like, take Jurassic Park. You know, okay. you get the idea that this is pretty close to the reality that we're living in. There is a paleontologist and a biologist, and they're in Montana, and then they get flown down to Costa Rica, and they've, there's a park, and they've been developing these things. Right. It's like not—there's not something else. But what are the— uh, conditions under which a world like this can pop I, up, and I, I, who is Ed Harris's character? I mean, I think that they're those are good even, questions. Yeah, and it's not even questions as much as I think that even though they are marketing this show mm-hmm. as a tone as similar to last season, mm-hmm. I think that this is a show that can succeed by having a little bit um, of mileage on the odometer. Uh, that it can be, it, it can say, "Look, we've already established certain things about how it's going to feel." who these people, quote, unquote, feel claustrophobic
0: these, quote unquote people,
1: quote, unquote, are. Yeah. And uh, I think it can go some, to some interesting places.
0: I, I love the way you framed it. I agree with you. The idea of like what kind of world makes a Jurassic Park. Yeah. It's just that this show is so deeply interested in only like Wayne Knight and a velociraptor. It went sure. inside out as opposed to going outside in. And frankly, I just don't find what nothing inside is interesting to me. It's going to have to be
1: a pretty colossal bed shitting by this show (laughs) to not make Fanny Newton, Jeffrey Wright, Evan Rachel Wood, Tessa Thompson...
0: all Ed these Harris. People, Ed Harris, interesting. This is, the fucking, that's the headline. The
1: homie Jimmy Simpson is back. You look, thought he was gone, but he ain't. Look,
0: you're 1,000% He's right. solving the Pock biggie murders
1: with one hand
0: <laughs> and inventing robots with the other? Look, between the time he put on the black hat and then aged into Ed Harris, right. he had a lot of free time. Right. I love the way you phrased it. Let's leave it at that because— well, I have
1: one more question for you. Yeah. I know that you don't like this show. Or, have, have I been— but Have I been clear about that? do you think that there is also some Ewing theory here with Hopkins? Like maybe it's something else. Like maybe it feels a little bit different without like Anthony Hopkins's gravitas obviously signals it, something coming, you know?
0: It is completely unfair to judge a show's new season by its trailer. But this is a podcast and that's what we do. Sure. Um, you could also make the argument that if it's not broke, don't fix it, or at least don't let people know you've been fixing it. Yes. So tonally, this trailer is completely of a piece with the first season. Um, That said, all I can do is go from what we've seen, and from what we've seen suggests that it's really more of the same. It's Dandy Newton threatening people and looking for her robot daughter. It's uh, Evan Rachel Wood. Is that
1: my robot daughter in there? There
0: it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's what this is, man. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's, let's do, do that. it, uh, Andy. So let's we'll talk see. about. Let's talk about Roseanne coming back. You got the Zach Mack laugh on.
1: I that. have not had a Zach Mack laugh. It's been. I mean, a who long would know? Because we usually time. record in the chapel, and Zach Mack is behind like eighty layers of bulletproof glass on
0: purpose. Yeah, <laughs> because he's going to make Jimmy Simpson do investigate. Because <laughs> he had to what-
1: record the Heat rewatchables, and he's never been the same. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Roseanne because you want to know what mm-hmm. eighteen million yeah. people watch
0: this show. People. People wanted to watch this. And
1: if you want to do some very very mathematically math math tight mathing. Say math again. That means that like fifty billion people watch this in like old
0: times. Yes. Like, and and continue and more people will watch it on Hulu yeah, or yeah. what have you.
1: Now I saw some interesting stuff in Slack. I think I can't remember if it was Victor or Allison put this in our in our TV Slack, where typically with these reunions, it's not on like Band reunions were the initial spike of, they're playing Coachella! Yeah. And then it kind of like, I was like, oh, are, are the replacements still touring? That's pretty cool, you yeah, know? right. But that being said, uh, 18 million people tuned in to watch two episodes of friggin' Roseanne on a Wednesday or Tuesday night. Uh, and I watched it. Do you watch both? I watched both. Me too. We had Laurie Metcalf in here. Uh, was it late last year or early? In this year? room, late last year. Yeah, to talk about Lady Bird, and she was talking to us about, about how... It was like putting on an old outfit, like it's just like everybody just like clicked immediately. Was so it was so happy remarkable to Remarkable how uh, how much everything just sort of slid into place. And you know, I think that I would I, there's a, there's a couple of different ways to approach this. the The conversation around Roseanne is, you know, I think it's it's quickly become one that I don't necessarily want to participate <laughs> in too actively, but it is uh, it's fascinating in some ways because you're talking a lot about um what the politics of the author mean to the politics of the art mm-hmm. or or the text so when the ranch does red state culture uh it has a layer, even though that we've been told by people on the ranch that it's, you know, b- who made the ranch. Uh, and obviously the ranch has its own set of problems with Danny Masterson. But in terms of like the show's politics and it's like lots of Obama jokes and don't touch mm-hmm. my guns and, and this and that and the other thing. Uh, you have to Im- you imagine that Ashton Kutcher, Silicon Valley, Gadfly, you know, that 70s show star is is not like – He's, he's not, like, a Trump guy, probably, right? You mean IRL? Yeah. Like, they, that. there's a degree to which it's, like, trying something on for, like, you know, and servicing a part, a, a, a demographic that mm-hmm. maybe doesn't feel like they okay. get, like, their own Netflix sitcoms or whatever. Uh, that's not the case for Roseanne. She's pretty explicitly a Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be, that is a problem for some people, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, debi- that debate and that issue is foregrounded. In these first two episodes. Mostly the sure. first episode. Mostly the first episode, but I think it lingers over the, the show a little bit. Possibly, yeah. Um, So I found myself debating that a lot, and I found myself thinking a lot about that while I was watching that first episode and watching the confrontation between Laurie Metcalf's Jackie character and Roseanne's mm-hmm. Roseanne character. I guess I'd ask you whether that mattered to you at all, mm-hmm. and also what your major takeaway was from the show.
0: Let's start big and macro here. Um, watching the show, watching it on ABC... Um, reminded me how and why TV works and, and, and the old ways that it used to work and that how, despite all the innovations and the different types of shows we're talking about, we are still often, when we say TV, we're talking about an old-fashioned box. Um, not the literal one that's now hanging on our walls, but watching a multicam sitcom like Roseanne on a broadcast network like ABC... It made me think that, you know, we have this vintage car and we keep trying to pour, like, wheatgrass into the into the fuel tank. Look what happens when you pour sweet, unleaded, bad-for-you gasoline into it. It purrs like a kitten. Yeah. This felt right. This was really enjoyable. I really liked the show. I had a great time watching the two episodes. Excited to watch more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, honestly, my first re- reaction to it was... Just a a feeling of deep familiarity, of course, because I watched the show religiously for many years when it was on in its original run. Um, Nice to have them back. But also that it just still worked. It still worked. And it is a similar feeling to watching One Day at a Time, which is unwittingly, and I would imagine unwillingly being inserted into this conversation as the it's okay to like this one but not okay to like this one um, slash thinkprogress.org. Right. Um, I understand, believe me, anyone who knows me in the real world— Just check his Twitter. (laughs) —knows that I do not have any time for people who prop up this despicable regime. Yes. That is how I spend most of my life thinking and feeling. Right. I cannot fathom Roseanne's personal, actual, off-screen politics— how she justifies it with who she was, who she is, what she thinks. The character that she plays in other aspects of this show, including the second episode. Yeah. Um, but the show is good. And I, I want to start there because this is a TV show and its goal is to make us laugh and make us feel other things and be entertaining and it's good. The- She's good. The writing is good. The I mean, John Goodman and Sarah Gilbert, who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, and Laurie Metcalf because they're... I mean, to, I don't even need to be charitable. They are always, they it's, are the better actors. Yeah, they're doing great work here.
1: And it's very, it's strange to go from where Roseanne was. What when? When did it go off the air? Like twenty years ago? Uh, twenty one years ago,
0: Tw- almost to the month, ninety seven.
1: Twenty one years ago, and since we- the, in the twenty one years since uh, Big Lebowski, you know, um, Lady Bird, all these things that they've done since then. To see them, the first season on, of Tremé on that set. Yeah, in in those in those. Clothes. Yeah, and, on that couch. And to see Laurie Metcalf walk in the door mm-hmm. like Kramer. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's almost like now the, what used to be so ordinary has become extraordinary. Yes. To see John Goodman get up in bed with a sleep apnea machine <laughs> on, you're just like, is this happening?
0: Yeah, but but also, unlike other revivals, let's say, I mean, ones that won't happen, like Friends or Seinfeld, I mean, never say never at this Don't, point. I, come but, on,
1: if you see 18 million people watch Roseanne, you've got to be there thinking be that somebody made a Cheers phone call today.
0: For sure. Yeah. But this was always about a family, and- it makes perfect sense in as much as we care about things like making sense, uh, that they would still be driving each other crazy Mm -hmm. under that same roof. It's actually interesting. The conversation and the scene in the first episode with the prescription medicine, that is exactly the type of scene that would have been on Roseanne and would have felt really revolutionary on television 25 years ago. And it's absolutely correct and great that it's on there again. You add to that an element of multicam sitcoms that I think a large swath of the prestige viewership has forgotten. Maybe they've relearned it a little bit by watching um, Big Bang Theory, or you know, maybe they, of course, they kept watching. Uh, um, did I say Big Bang Theory? Yeah. Maybe they watch Big Bang Theory. Maybe they watch One Day at a Time, and they still get some of that. Sure. But one of the pleasures of this medium has always been the theatrical element of it, and what you see on Roseanne right from the beginning is John Goodman is th- fucking thrilled to be there. Sure. He's a great actor who's busy. Laurie Metcalf is busy. <laughs> they don't have to do this. Yeah. They're here because they like each other and it's fun. Do you think DJ was busy? I, it's a great call. And I'm trying to be <laughs> respectful of some of the, the fringier parts of the like show. I he, ha- he
1: must have some episodes coming. You know, like
0: some more looks. Maybe. But, you know, this, I'm sure he's a lovely guy. Like, acting, kid acting I'm not, is one I'm not thing. Trying, I'm not trying to, like, make fun of, of your guy. Look, he's not my guy. Look, I was always a Darlene head. And seeing Sarah Gilbert play that part, the way they put the part, the way they've advanced the character back into the house, I mean, it's also kind of profound because when you watch that show as kids, as we were, uh, I think there was some uh, identifying with the kids in that house and as kids in the audience being like, well, boy, they always couldn't wait to get out. Uh And you have to feel like as kids living with your parents, even if our parents weren't as broadly drawn as Roseanne and Dan, we kind of couldn't wait to get out either. Then there's this crushing reality of like, oh, they just became their parents. They just became adults. They never got away. Adds another level of pathos to it. Um, Darlene's Kids, interesting addition as well. And I think that it's also you can't talk about the – relatively shrill introduction of the politics in the first episode, which really is to get attention. It's really to say, like, this is what the show is Mm -hmm. going to be in 2018, and then it's going to recede and live within the lived experience of the show like almost every other hot-button issue. You can't talk about that without talking about the second episode, which was intentionally broadcast with it. Yes. In which Roseanne and the rest of the family embrace Darlene's son, who— wears uh, he wears a skirt at the end of the episode. He wears what I guess you could call stereotypically feminine clothing. Mm-hmm. Um they ask him at one point, one of the characters asks him, Roseanne asks him if he identifies as being a boy and he says he does. It was well handled, it was funny. And it was handled in a way that only an old-fashioned sitcom machine like this could handle it, where we know Dan. We know he's a quote-unquote sure. good guy. Yeah. And so but he's he needs to go these... out into
1: the garage and, and like process it for a second. Yeah.
0: There's, there's something legitimate about that. And for all the attention being paid to, oh, this glamorizes this fiction that Trump voters were just had working-class anxieties when, in fact, they're all racist. Look, many things can be true at the same time. Yeah. And working-class anxieties are real. And people who need a minute to adjust to things are real. But more importantly, I think the power and beauty of the show as it returns is reminding people of something that is still true in America, despite the ruined <laughs> pre fall state we're in, which is people are very different when things come about their own families than they are yes. about the larger world in politics. Is that fair? Is that right? Is that unfortunate? Let's have a different conversation on a different podcast about it. But it's true. And when you see an individual reacting to an individual, it can be moving, and it can be powerful, and it can be instructive. So I think the show worked as a show, but I also think that politically it is more interesting than people who are who are who are ready to, to throw it in the garbage. Give it credit. For
1: it. I, I wanted to just point out one quick thing that you you sort of touched on, which was uh, the um, the importance of it being on ABC, and just like you talking about like the centra- the centrality of the place that television can take in yeah. our lives. I do think that there is something to the heavy hitters behind the scenes. I think that there is something about, like, yep. Wanda Sykes, Norm Macdonald, and especially Whitney Cummings being involved in the Murphy. show. And Morgan Murphy. And Morgan Murphy. People who obviously probably grew, grew up or came of age watching Roseanne. But Norm wrote on it, I think. Yeah, right. And... A lot of this thing had was spit shined. Like there were a couple of dead, like weird, awkward moments, but for the most part, you're watching a group of people delivering lines, waiting for the yeah, blast yeah. to die down just enough to hit the next line. And when you watch Roseanne on Kimmel, she's she's all over the place. Like it's it's not yeah. like it's not like super funny. It's not like a cool hang. But they are able to figure out the best way to use what it is she does. Yeah. And I, I think it's like a testament to like professionalism.
0: I, I completely agree and I also think the getting things going again is always the hardest yeah, part right. and the premiere was bumpier it wasn't as funny, it was just, it got by a lot on the uh, the warmth of seeing these people again and the sort of hot button nature to it. I mean you can look at it and you can make the argument that in the writing, Roseanne comes off a little bit better than Jackie, who's more of a, who's a little bit more shrill uh, but Maybe I'm a softie. Maybe I'm maybe I'm another mark. Well, we'll see where but, we'll but, see where we are next week. But they hugged at the end of it. Yeah, and they sure. were family going forward, and I think that really is what matters for the show. It's it's bizarre that it's back, but it feels really normal and fine. Yeah. and I, I I can't believe how much I enjoyed it.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be back. Andy will be talking with Allison Herman about the final season of The
0: Americans,
1: and then uh, that's that's a show.
0: Then you have a nice weekend, my friends. <laughs> but we we'll, we got a lot more to talk about next week and some interviews as well. Okay. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Google Assistants. Did you know you can complete over a million actions on your phone, in your car, and around the house with a Google Assistant? For example, just say, hey Google, add chips and salsa to my shopping list. Okay, I've added chips and salsa to your shopping list. There you go. Download the Google Assistant. Today's show is being brought to you by the hit Showtime series, Billions, starring Emmy Award winners Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti. The fierce rivalry between hedge fund CEO Bobby Ax Axelrod and U.S. attorney Chuck Rhodes is more cutthroat than ever. Fortunes, families, and legacies be damned. They will cross every line to take each other down. As the stakes rise, who can they trust? How far will they go to save themselves? Don't miss the awesome new season of Billions. The show Entertainment Weekly calls bigger and bolder, and Uproxx calls the most addictive show on television. New episodes of Billions, Sundays at 10, 9 central, only on Showtime. Our listeners can get an extended 30-day free trial of Showtime to catch up on the first two seasons of Billions by entering code THEWATCH at GetShowtime.com. This offer expires April 15th. Now is a very happy time on The Watch because I finally got rid of Chris Ryan, whose <laughs> intransigence about FX's The Americans has just reached... I. I Cold War levels, and now finally we can have a perestroika, a glasnost, if you will, by welcoming The Ringers' Alison Herman onto the show to talk about a show that she has watched.
2: I have watched it, but I do have a confession, which is that I'm going to be forced to play the Chris Ryan in this situation (laughs) because possibly my greatest failing as a TV critic is that I am not fully on board
0: the American's train. Have you, just to establish this here, so tell me about your train journey with the show.
2: I watched the first couple—I gave it a couple seasons. I think I watched it basically in binge because it's on Amazon Prime. Okay. And I couldn't quite figure out what it was that wasn't grabbing me. Mm -hmm. It's not a I'm actively criticizing the show. Mm -hmm. I can appreciate it. I can admire it. You're a Chris Ryan
0: plant is what you're saying. You're here to undermine the segment. (laughs)
2: Oh, yeah. I'm here to stand in for him. But basically, it just never clicked for me in the way that I saw it being hyped up by other critics— who many of whom think this is the best show on television. I think to be clear this is not a full like Sean Fennessy leftovers this is a crock of shit everyone is blind situation. For the record, an
0: all time bad take by Sean Fennessy.
2: I think we can both agree on yeah. that. But if
0: we're here to drag Sean then this is going to be a great podcast.
2: <laughs> we can go a few a few angles further but yeah, I just, it just never grabbed me. And I think as I was catching up and preparing for this very appearance, I finally realized why, which is that I just don't think any other element of the show, possibly with the exception of Allison Wright and of course, character actress Margaret Martindale, mm-hmm. has ever quite lived up to me to the central relationship. I think Matthew Reese and Carrie Russell are so good mm-hmm. and the premise of their careers and marriages and subterfuge, marriage and subterfuge all combined into this one men that they can't ever quite figure out but are stuck with is just such a good hook that every time we go to hang out in the Russian embassy or stand with Stan Beeman, right. I just automatically checked out a few degrees and therefore it's never clicked together as a show for me. Well,
0: I think what you're speaking to is 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 going to, in large part, that fuels this... this entire conversation about where we are with the show. so we're we're talking now, having the first episode of the sixth and final season has aired. Um we're recording this early, but this will this podcast will post on Thursday after people have seen it. And uh, it's a very interesting time for the show. I am one of the true believers who but even for many you. years well, this is what I'm getting to. For four seasons, I was proud to say this was, I think, the best drama on television. I was completely riveted, completely rocked by it. Um, I thought that the emotional stakes that it played with were unprecedented. I really admired the way the show just took what appeared to be still waters and just kept kept diving, kept diving deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the psychology of these very troubled <laughs> characters. Um, season five was challenging, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, but I imagine even for people who weren't entirely sure about where they stood on it, that season five was a di- more difficult watch. And there were, s- some of the main reasons were the secondary characters, right? I mean, the Martha relationship uh, played by Allison Wright, the character played by Allison Wright, was removed in very dramatic fashion from the show and the show didn't recover. The Nina relationship was removed and the show didn't recover. And more than that, what began I began to realize was that things that I had long championed as features started to look more like bugs. And this is what's making this sixth season so nerve-wracking for me because obviously the wonderful seasons of the show exist. um, But I really want something as in this last season as rich as what I experienced in the first few seasons. And when I speak about those those features turning out to be bugs, I always admired how much the show downplayed traditional um, dramatic structure in a lot of ways. That it didn't build up to the explosive moment. That it kind of always... Punted, kind of like conflict often happens in real life. And then we have things like Philip's son that he doesn't even know exists travels for multiple episodes to America at great expense personal, emotional, and financial to see his father, meets Frank Langella, and is told to go home.
2: Yeah, good stuff.
0: That's not <laughs> satisfying. Purely, that is not satisfying. And it struck me that maybe. Uh, Joel and Joe, who have been very kind to this podcast and to me and are always willing to talk about this stuff, and I hope they will come on again at the end of the season, believe so strongly in their negation of what people of what people want that they ceased giving us anything that we want at a yeah, certain point. Yeah, there
2: was a really interesting oral history of the show and mm-hmm. variety that they ran to preview this final mm-hmm. season, and they had a quote in it that I thought was really interesting that was basically saying after the first season – if you go back and rewatch it now, it's a lot more episodic. It's a lot more, here's the spy mission you need of to the accomplish in, yep. this, in this episode. And they said they realized after that no one was actually telling them that they had to do that. And it freed them up to tell longer, more serialized stories and just prioritize the central relationship over the specific things these two people were being asked yes. to do by their superiors. Which I read that and I think, yes, but also— <laughs> I think there's been a lot of conversation in TV criticism generally about the usefulness of episodic structure Mm -hmm. and how you balance that with longer serialized arcs and season long or even series long in the case of the Americans conflicts. And sometimes that can get out of whack. I think mostly we talk about it in the case of streaming because there's not even act breaks to Mm -hmm. guide them. But I do think it sometimes happens on shows like this that are on FX that do have a lot of creative latitude that someone making a show for ABC might not have.
0: And sometimes structures and expectations can be good things and playing against them um, and playing against them can create great art or great television, at least. I, I, I'm not going to say I don't like doing this because back when I was a critic, I love doing this and I still love doing this. Um, I love reading things on the screen as meta-psychological cries for help from the writer's room. Season five began with the characters digging a hole for what felt like 20 minutes. I believe it was more like 10 minutes. All to rebury, or to first unearth and then rebury a body that had been dealt with this previous year. It was, to me, an entire season that basically tread water. The last beats of it, which I know and I've heard them talk about it and when they talk about their intentions for the characters, it sounds compelling, but it just didn't play that way to me because it ended with them saying, I don't really want to do this anymore. And they've been saying that for so long that it just felt unsatisfying.
2: Well, maybe we could use this as a transition into the actual season because one of the richest, most promising things about uh, about the premiere, apart from being a very Philip and Elizabeth and their relationship heavy episode, is that it starts with both the biggest time jump that the show has ever taken and an actual significant substantive change in the status quo, yes. which is we come back, Philip is no longer actively engaged with spy work and he has instead gone from the frying pan to the fire, one doomed enterprise to the other. Yeah. He has left the Soviet Union and has thrown himself into being a travel agent.
0: <laughs> yes, what a great choice for the long-term <laughs> viability of his career. Uh, he also, and I have to think that this was entirely for me, because I'm incredibly egocentric, finally line dancing again in his cowboy boots. And in my muted criticisms of seasons two, three, and four, the only thing that I wished for was a little more Philip having fun. And obviously he was not enjoying himself. And that was the main thrust of the show. So it was nice to see him happy. Matthew Reese plays happy very well. Um, It did feel like in those opening moments, some great music cues, some momentum, uh, that what another critic Alan Sepinwall had voiced uh, last year may have proved to be true, which is that when you get those, you get two more season final orders, creators often kind of tread water for the first one. And then because they're saving everything for that last season, it felt a little bit like that may be, might be plausible. I have to say, um, I think they yada yada a lot of interesting stuff here in the premiere, in the premiere, a three year time jump is always interesting. Um, Seeing Paige where she is now was helpful because I didn't really want to see Paige baby spy. You know, I'm happy that, okay, so she's doing this now? Okay, that helps the story they want to tell about parents and children. But the whole idea of Gorbachev coming to power and of the formerly Cold War starting to melt that really, I think, would have played well into the dynamics of Philip and Elizabeth's relationship as which one is American, which one is still Soviet, what do they think of their homeland, what are they doing this for? And I really miss some of that because instead we're just thrust right into an entirely new world that is going to end their story and the series.
2: I think I interpreted a lot of the Gorbachev hints as as more of a setup to a longer conflict. One of the things I actually really appreciated is that it sets up as not just— It's not just Americans versus Russians. It's not just capitalism versus communism. Mm -hmm. There is also very real, very significant, and very impactful debate within Russia about what this country means and what its path forward is. And I like the idea that it offers something to Philip beyond, you know, go full capitalist shill. He can also— hold on to his patriotism and have that be a motivation, but it's a different kind of patriotism from Elizabeth's. Speaking of yada yadas, one thing that this premiere mm. really skipped over was, I want to know what that first peek back in the wig closet was like when he gets drawn <laughs> back into the spy work. Yes, he
0: hadn't been there in forever. <laughs> I mean, what kind, of, what kind of mothballs were hitting him in the face? Why didn't we get that moment of like, well, we got to do this again, and then opening that drawer, that safe. I think that's a great call. I thought you were going to say... One of the biggest yada yadas of all time is Burov's wife and kid. I mean, what a scene for that wife! What 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 storytelling lifting that had to be accomplished in their one scene before we will almost definitely never see her again.
2: I also thought there was some really. One of the more interesting tidbits from that oral history was that they said it was very important to them from the beginning to have Elizabeth be the more conventional antihero. She is physically and emotionally more tough. She yes. plays kind of the stereotypical male role, and having Philip exit spiral the spiral the spy game mm-hmm. altogether sets the stage for this amazing final scene where he's literally staying up late at the kitchen table yeah. after doing accounting and being like, "This is destroying you and our family," and she's like. Shut up! I, you know, I'm tired of your speeches. Which I could have been watching. Skyler White calling out Walter. It totally. literally puts him in the role of the concerned wet blanket wife. Yes, which I thought was such a great twist on that relationship and is a really great new dynamic that is introduced.
0: I think that's a great point. I want to ask your thoughts on um, placing the show into the larger canon and the larger business of television. One thing that um, definitely was clear. Uh, as the show went on, is that they struggled with... I don't know if this was budgetary or just decision-making. Some characters that they wanted to be a part of the show clearly could not be, and thus affected the storytelling. They created an overall framework where it made sense. They had a lot of things going on. Philip and Elizabeth had a lot of missions going on at any time, so maybe we're just not seeing every, every mission they're running. But in the case of, as you mentioned, noted character actress Margot Martindale, they had her at the beginning... They lost her. She always made another appearance. They have her again for this last season, uh, which I think is a good thing.
2: As Paige's surrogate grandma, which who among us has not fantasized about having character actress Margot Martindale as the matriarch in your family? What a
0: warm, warm hug she appears to give. Um sometimes some teeth in those hugs from past matriarchal performances. I
2: mean, I'm concerned, but for the moment, I'm happy for Paige.
0: Um, Other ones, though, uh, Julia Garner, who I think is one of the great young actors on television, she's on Ozark now, Uh, is going to be on Maniac in the fall. She had a great turn on the Americans in a very complicated relationship with Philip. She made another appearance last year. They simply didn't have her under contract, so they couldn't assume that she was going to be back. Um, It's a bummer. You know, and because we've spent a lot of time with her in that relationship and it felt like something was going to pay off there because maybe this is old television thinking, it simply didn't. Meanwhile, Burov, a great actor, great character, was just checking out the grain stores for a year only to be brought back to finally interact with the star of the show who he had never met before. I can't tell if I am criticizing the storytelling of the Americans, which is an uncomfortable position for me to be in, or if I'm merely observing the way modern television works now with people working a ton and it's, and keeping people under contract being more difficult.
2: Well, I almost feel like it's a flashback to old TV. Like, we are so used to watching shows now where money is just zero object and yeah. the crown can just recreate Buckingham <laughs> Palace to the detail and yep. I, well, I guess that's not quite accurate because apparently they couldn't spare a few extra million to pay Claire well, Foy that's what she Well, that's why they could
0: do it. They save money where it mattered.
2: Possibly, but where it mattered. But, um, <laughs> you know, we're so used to television that has unlimited resources mm. and therefore can give us the most fully realized fantasy that we could possibly expect, a like la Game of Thrones, which can just hopscotch around Iceland and Morocco and mm-hmm. Italy and Croatia and what not. And in the Americans, you can actually see resources being scarce and them having to not quite take shortcuts, but just cover for the existing realities of, OK, well, this person isn't under contract. Let's kill them. is a classic television thing that you yep. just have to put up with. And um Watching them kind of chafe against that is a really interesting reminder. I mean, for me, it occurred to me when Elizabeth hops down to Mexico City, and we've both been to Mexico City, mm-hmm. and that was very clearly Park Slope masquerading as Mexico City. Listen, God bless.
0: <laughs> they, fil- the Amer- they filmed the Americans' blocks from where I lived for 17 years, and what a great job transforming what are generally not the most exciting city uh, city streets in New York into D.C. and many other places, including Mexico.
2: I mean, they work with what they have. And I do think they do a great job. I just think in this age of, you know, where McMafia just casually films on 14 different continents, which don't even exist. It's very rare to come do a show and be like, oh, okay, they're, they're maneuvering around an actual pragmatic reality where we're so used to TV without any material limits.
0: This is another point I have to make about the Americans in this final season is that. It feels very old fashioned in a way now. And then when the show premiered um, six years ago, which is hard to believe, um, it seemed to fit a lot of the forward thinking tenets of TV at the time, where prestige drama was king, um, but we were already moving towards the one sheet era of television. And what I mean by that is you can't make a movie unless you can sell it on the poster. So we have game night and tag or whatever these other, you know, okay, I understand what that is, so maybe I'll see the movie. Um, at the time, it was okay, they're married and they have difficulties, but they're Russian spies. And so you're asking these enormous, difficult, backbreaking questions right at the beginning and then watching writers, talented writers, try to unscramble that for a series. Um, Now the show is ending in an era where just getting a drama about people on the air feels incredibly difficult unless those people are the Gettys and Danny Boyle's directing it and we have 10 episodes. Um, FX, which has been at the front lines of, every major movement of prestige TV of the last five to ten years has unlike you know much like all the other places struggled with figuring out okay what's next in drama I mean it's signature show now those that aren't made by Ryan Murphy who they're about to lose is Atlanta um, the Americans with its focus on well here are these people okay yes they're Russian spies but this is what merit it's about marriage and no one would ever accuse the Americans of looking visually dynamic. It is an no, incredibly <laughs> visually flat show, which again, used to think was a feature, starting to worry as a bug. Um, it doesn't feel, it never caught on, obviously, to a large degree. But it, it's it's bizarre to me that it feels like a relic, despite just being six years old.
2: I mean, it's funny, the entire format of serialized drama, this is really one of the last one's standings. I mean, I cannot believe it was this long ago now, but my end of year piece for 2016 was mm-hmm. literally... All the shows that are coming up are either half-hour or dramatic anthologies because people Mm -hmm. realize the possibilities in an extended narrative, but also a limited one that they can move around and move past. I actually didn't realize this, but apparently Trust is going to be an anthology series. Yeah,
0: three or four seasons.
2: I had no idea, which also fills me with a little bit of exhaustion, but that's a whole If you see a colon
0: in a title, it's an anthology series.
2: I just saw the word trust. I I was trusting them. I thought it was going to be over. If you look
0: closely at the at the ads, it says trust colon day of the Soldado, and (laughs) and so you know there's going to be another day still to come.
2: This is true. I I wonder. I wonder who's the Benicio del Toro of of the trust Trust expanded universe. Is Brendan Fraser? Fraser, yeah, yeah, shouldn't have asked, but you know. At the time that I wrote that piece, Leftovers was heading into its amazing final season. Yes. Halt and Catch Fire, a show that reminds me of the Americans in a lot of ways and also began its final season with a dramatic three-year time jump.
0: Great call. Also underappreciated in its time.
2: Absolutely. But all these shows are kind of heading into their twilight, and it's fascinating to see, I think, the greatest potential of these kinds of dramas is that they can really make you feel the passage of time mm-hmm. in their characters' lives. So that was always Made my favorite lives. thing about Mad Men. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. That was kind of my favorite thing about Halt and Catch Fire, which managed in just four seasons to take us so far mm-hmm. in these characters' emotional experiences. And I think that's what's happening with the Americans. I do think maybe the problem is... Maybe such an enormous shift in the lay of the land as Philip outright quitting, which is Mm -hmm. something that has maybe been in the offing since the very beginning of the series. It's always been the dynamic. Maybe they shouldn't have waited until the very last sequence of episodes to spring. maybe have a few episodes of him fully being out of the spy game before he's pulled back in. And therefore you could feel the impact of him being reluctantly taken back in. It's such a great
0: point because for a show that prides itself – on having ripples, not tidal waves, why did we hide the tidal wave? Like, when you're ready to give us one, give it to us. And I think that worked with the Martha episode, which didn't end the way many people expected, to its credit, you know, but still felt momentous and huge and emotionally devastating. Yeah, they they yada-yadded something that I think we really needed.
2: Yeah, and I still... I'm optimistic about the final season. For one thing, we're finally going to learn how the Cold War ends. I yeah, can't wait I for the reveal. Know.
0: <laughs> I, I have a good feeling about Russia. I think, you know, even if they don't win in the series, I think they're going to come back strong. I think I think we're, we haven't heard the last they of those guys. They seem to be gaming
2: that summit pretty well.
0: They're, they're, they're doing stuff well. They, they, they're playing the long game.
2: I'm optimistic about people playing Having the runway to plan out the I conclusion, I do think maybe one of my favorite developments of the last few years of TV is I kind of call it the renewalation, but the whole idea of, okay, we're not going to abruptly cancel you. We're going to give you the final order. we are in. willing to spend the money so that we have a good choreographed, planned out ending in perpetuity to just put in our archives exactly
0: it, that it, it is partially they're being kind and they like these shows. but really, as to your point, it's to have something a complete something in your content library for future. Um, IP mining. And
2: they won't get shamed for eternity in that they didn't give Damon Lindelof right. or Joe and Joel the opportunity to actually tell their story in full the yes. way they wanted to tell it. So I think I'm, I trust that they have something in mind for these characters I mean, I don't quite trigger reservations because, like I mentioned, I've never been yeah. so in on this show that I can be crushed by a down season. But also one of the things we both love about television is that they can recalibrate.
0: That's the greatest thing. But it, I think it is worth noting in general, but particularly in the context of this conversation, that I think a lot of people still think purely by uh, – dint of having so many choices that we are still living through a kind of 1970s American cinema moment on television when in fact we are well into the 80s blockbuster era and you simply could not get Halt and Catch Fire or The Americans made today. I, I don't think you could. There was a moment when it seemed like everybody was desperate for content and everyone was chasing that AMC model of like, let's just pick up the best scripts we can and get noticed, get on the map. Um, This isn't to say that places like FX aren't still obsessed with quality or exacting about quality, but I I just think that the arms race spurred by... Amazon and Netflix and then Apple. And then the course correction where Amazon's like, maybe we don't need to pay for two distinct F. Scott Fitzgerald properties at the same time. And in fact, should spend a quarter billion dollars on Lord of the Rings. There's a ripple effect there. And I say this not just to contextualize where we are in TV, but to hopefully ask people to appreciate the final moments of what I think is one of the great shows of this in-between era, the sort of post golden age. I mean, they're not going to write in, in, difficult men too more difficulter. I don't think there's going to be chapters about the Americans necessarily. I, I don't think it's on, on that Rushmore, but this was a really interesting, serious minded show about the emotional cost of marriage and its highs were higher than just about anything else I watched over the last few years. And I, yeah, I, I, I realized I sounded more negative about it, but only because I was very disappointed in the last season and I'm just nervous. I'm nervous like a fan, not like a critic, but in this I'm nervous like a fan that I I just want I want to capture that feeling one more time on the way out.
2: I can understand and as the passionate or the uh
0: dispassionate, dispassionate.
2: <laughs> disengaged yeah. neutral referee of all yeah. of the quality of this entire series, <laughs> I will be watching patiently as well. I'm very, I'm excited, to, I'm curious, I'm excited to see how it pans out. I do feel for the the last You know, that final season, oh, my God, what's going to happen feeling. I definitely remember it with The Leftovers and that whole. It's funny because I think the whole miracle of The Leftovers was that you didn't know what to expect. And to bring Halt and Catch Fire back in, I think there's also an interesting component of fatalism to both of them Mm -hmm. in that the last season of Halt and Catch Fire saw every single major character essentially racing to invent Google. Mm-hmm. None of these people are named Larry or Sergei. Mm-hmm. They were never going to do it. That's just a foregone conclusion. And that kind of gives this whole cast of tragedy, but it also allows them to make this really powerful case for these stories matter, even if these people aren't the victors of history. And obviously we know that, you know, there's a hard deadline on these people's jobs mm-hmm. that's coming very soon. But... I think the fact that the Americans has managed to convince people to invest in this despite that and to have us be invested in what happens in this final season beyond the major geopolitical events is a real testament to the show.
0: I think that's incredibly right. I think it's an incredibly smart connection to make. When we talk about shows like like Waco um, or even Trust, you know, uh, Wikipedia can be our enemy because where's the dramatic stakes of something that we already all know the ending of. Um, what you're saying and what these shows have done is take advantage of it knowing can add this incredible level of tragedy to it, it a, a melancholy to all of it because all the effort all the bodies for what
2: yeah I wrote this thing actually at Westworld called where I talked about something that I called the Wikipedia test mm-hmm. where it's you know if I If I can go to Wikipedia, read the plot description for a show, and then all of my curiosity about what actually happens in the show is just gone because I was only ever interested in it for the raw Mm -hmm. A, then B, then C plot of it, then that show has failed. But if a show manages to convince me to care because I actually am more interested in things like in Game of Thrones, you know, I read the books. I knew what was coming, but I still just loved watching. I I haven't read
0: them. I I never said that on a microphone before, but but go on.
2: (laughs) I think you'll survive. But – you know, I was in it for just watching Nikolai Costa Waldo and oh my god, I'm Gwendolyn Christie, uh just sit in a hot tub and talk to each other because they're such great actors. And You know, I know that the end of the Soviet Union is nigh, but I think Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell do such an incredible job that I'm excited to watch them just sit in a room and hash out their issues, even though I know the big picture. Because Westworld
0: (laughs) fails that test, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. I love
0: it. Okay, now we're back on the same page. Um, Also, it's interesting to watch this final season of The Americans knowing that one member of the Jennings family invented Cambridge Analytica. That's the long game. That's playing the real here.
2: tragedy. It's not that the Soviet Union yeah. is going to collapse. No,
0: it's that Russia actually wins, guys. That's <laughs> actually the long game they were playing. Um, Alison Herman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about a show that you don't love as much as I do. On the microphone, you are a far better conversationalist about the show than Chris. <laughs> That's <laughs> going
2: at the top of my CV. <laughs>
0: seriously, though. And uh, please read Allison's work on The Ringer. She's, you can catch her there most days talking about most shows because it is there's a lot.
2: There's a lot of TV. There's a lot. Take. There's, There's a lot. lot. <laughs>
0: that's, that's all I got to say about it anymore. Um, thank you for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by the hit Showtime series, Billions, starring Emmy Award winners Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti. The fierce rivalry between hedge fund CEO Bobby Axelrod and U.S. attorney Chuck Rhodes is more cutthroat than ever. Don't miss the awesome new season of Billions. It's the show Entertainment Weekly calls bigger and bolder, and Uprox calls the most addictive show on television. With new episodes Sundays at 10, 9 central, only on Showtime. Get this, our listeners can get an extended 30-day free trial of Showtime to catch up on the first two seasons of Billions by entering code THEWATCH at GetShowtime.com. That's code THEWATCH at GetShowtime.com. Offer expires April 15th. Also, we've got exciting news for all the hardcore Ringer stands. The Ringer has new merchandise with a shiny new storefront you can check out right now. Their hats, hoodies, even an exclusive Shea Serrano disrespectful dunk t-shirt. Your friends will be low-key jealous when they see you strutting down the street with an official Ringer zip-up hoodie. Hey, that's not my copy. I would be high-key jealous. Previously available only to Ringer staffers and the occasional podcast host, we are letting you, our loyal listeners, get first dibs on the goods. Go to theringer.com slash shop to pre-order your Ringer merch now. These are limited-run items and will not last long. Once they're gone... Man, they are gone. Just like someone disrespecting Shay on Twitter, they are gone. Again, check out the slash shop to pre-order your official Ringer merchandise today. You can also find the link to the Ringer web store in the podcast description.